0: This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. President Biden said Tuesday that the United States intends to withdraw completely from Afghanistan at the end of the month as planned, rebuffing police from Britain, France, and other key allies to keep troops in Kabul. Instead, Biden doubled down on an August 31st deadline, which the Taliban warns is a red line not to be crossed without fear of consequences. The Taliban is stressing it's time for the U.S. and its allies to pack up and get out. Transport planes and civilian aircraft from around the world are evacuating vulnerable Afghans. But there's a huge bottleneck at transit hubs. At the U.S. base in Doha, Qatar, thousands are crowded in holding areas temperatures well over 100 degrees. According to the New York Times, the United States has already begun to reduce its military presence at Hamid Karzal International Airport in Kabul, sending about 300 of the 5,800 Marines and soldiers home in anticipation of the conclusion of their rescue mission within a week.
1: I was just at the Kabul Airport yesterday, and there were still huge crowds of people streaming towards the gate talking about old women in wheelbarrows because they can't walk and they're being pushed along. Young children being carried by their parents and just people in their droves making their way towards the gates. Many of them without the correct travel documentation, unable to board evacuation flights, but some of them with permission, but still just unable to make their way through the crowd. The sooner we
0: can finish, the better, the president said, hours after informing world leaders of his intentions during an emergency virtual meeting. Citing the threat from the Islamic State affiliate known as ISIS-K and operating in Afghanistan, he said that every day we're on the ground is another day we know that ISIS-K is seeking to target the airport attacked both U.S. and allied forces and innocent civilians.
1: Well, eyewitnesses from this scene uh, describe a suicide bomber that walked along a sewage canal just outside Abbey Gate, as David was saying, walked into the middle of this packed crowd and blew himself up. A Taliban spokesman is quoted by Reuters by saying 13 people are dead. As is always the case, these numbers fluctuate. We've seen some grim pictures reportedly from the scene that suggest those numbers will go up. The Taliban is saying children and Taliban guards are among them. And just to paint that picture, you've seen thousands of people packed outside that airport despite these warnings. I mean, the State Department said as clear as could be today to Americans and everyone else for that matter to get away from the airport. If you're coming, stay away. If you're there, get out. And that went for everybody. Clearly, there were people that didn't heed that warning. The president said that more than 70,000 people had been ferried
0: out of harm's way since August 14th the day before the Taliban swept into power in Kabul. On Tuesday, the Pentagon reported its biggest number of daily evacuations from the Kabul airport so far, saying it had airlifted 21,600 people out of the country in just about 24 hours.
2: I want to say again just how difficult this mission is and how dangerous it po- the dangers it poses to our troops on the ground. The security environment is changing rapidly. There are civilians crowded at the airport, although we've cleared thousands of them. We know that terrorists may seek to exploit the situation and target innocent Afghans or American troops. They're maintaining constant vigilance. We're maintaining the constant vigilance to monitor and disrupt threats from any source, including the likely source being ISIS-K, Uh, The Afghan affiliate
0: referred to as ISIS-K. As crowds continued to throng the airport, the Taliban sought to assert their authority over a country they conquered in lightning speed. A spokesman, Zabahullah Majid, said Taliban militants would block Afghans from the airport for their own safety and reiterated that the United States must leave by August 31st. There's a lot of discussion in the West about
1: the 31st. Have you received any requests from the Americans to extend the evacuation, uh, the evacuation scheme beyond that date? And are there any circumstances under which you would agree to extending that date?
0: I don't think we will extend the
2: deadline. 31st, it is Uh, their plan, it is the American plan. plan. This was already
1: not according to the the agreement. They have opportunity,
2: they have all the resources, they can take all the people that belong to them.
1: We are not going to allow uh, Afghans leave, and we will not extend the deadline. We will be deciding about this there, then, then.
0: The New York Times also reported on the warnings from the Taliban for women to stay off the streets and not go to their jobs, also ostensibly for their own safety and only as a temporary measure. The Times said... It was the chilling potent of the harsh repression that the Taliban imposed on women and girls the last time they ruled Afghanistan. We are worried our forces, who are new and have not yet been trained very well, may mistreat women, Mr. Mujahid said. Until we have a new procedure, they should stay home. They won't be counted as absent and their salaries will be paid in their homes.
1: What would you say to women, Afghan women, who are terrified? They are our sisters. We must show them respect. They should not be frightened. The Taliban are humans and from this country. They have fought for their country. Women should be proud of us, not scared.
0: There are already reports of Taliban fighters taking young women, unmarried women, as
1: brides, forced brides. There have been reports of people going into homes. This is propaganda from the old regime. We have no evidence of a single case.
0: Politically speaking, Biden is desperate for this to end quickly, lest he end up looking like Jimmy Carter in 1979, but with many more American lives in the balance.
2: Throughout this extraordinarily difficult period, we have pursued and will continue to pursue every possible avenue to secure the release of the hostages. In these efforts, the support of the American people and of our friends throughout the world has been a most crucial element. That support of other nations is even more important now. We will seek to continue, along with other nations and with the officials of Iran, a prompt resolution of the crisis.
0: Aside from the obvious physical threat of the Taliban or other actors taking Americans hostage, Biden's political career is also figuratively being held hostage. Even if the Taliban proves to be a disciplined hierarchy, and even if ISIS... The threat is real. It is persistent. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said on Sunday. And other groups don't harm any Americans. Biden still risks provoking a reaction from the Taliban if he does not meet this deadline.
3: That means they are
2: extending occupation, while uh, there is no need uh, for for that. I think that it will
3: deteriorate the relation. That will uh, create mistrust between us. If they are intent on continuing the occupation, so it
0: will um, provoke a reaction. Biden clearly doesn't want to tempt fate by missing this deadline, but what's the alternative? The option of leaving Americans behind is unthinkable. Even if Biden's defense secretary hinted, We might when he promised to get everybody that we can possibly evacuated, at least until the clock runs out or we run out of culpability. We put
2: out uh, repeated warnings every three weeks to Americans going back to, I think, March or April. Uh, Each one in stronger terms, leave now, leave immediately. Uh, never in my, my uh, 40 years of working, uh, uh, since I began working at the State Department, have I seen such strong, uh, such strong language used. Uh, people chose not to leave, that's, that's their business, that's their right. Uh, I, I, we regret now that, that uh, many may find
0: themselves in a position that they would rather not be in. Biden can't abandon Americans, but he also can't afford to have this withdrawal turn into more of a disaster than it already has. The obvious option is to retreat faster. This makes it look more like we are being kicked out than what we have decided to leave. We are left with a situation where some tired group of radicals is now dictating American policy as we hurry to meet this arbitrary deadline.
2: The completion by August 31st depends upon the Taliban continuing to cooperate and allow access to the airport for those who were, trans- were transporting out and no disruptions to our operations. In addition, I've asked the Pentagon and the State Department for contingency plans to adjust the timetable, should that become necessary. I'm
0: determined to ensure that we complete our mission, this mission. Mr. Biden's team argues that it will not matter in the long run because Americans agree with his decision to pull out after 20 years of war and do not care what happens in Afghanistan as long as their fellow citizens are extracted safely. Afghanistan is America's longest war, stretching through four presidencies, and none of those presidents found a way to disengage successfully.
1: Charlie Daggett is now monitoring the newest developments, he's he's in Doha, Doha, Qatar. Charlie, I know this is a fluid situation, it's very much in in flux, but what are you hearing? Well, eyewitnesses from the scene uh, describe a suicide bomber that walked along a sewage canal just outside Abbey Gate, as David was saying, walked into the middle of this packed crowd and blew himself up. A Taliban spokesman is quoted by Reuters by saying 13 people are dead. As is always the case, these numbers fluctuate. We've seen some grim pictures purportedly from the scene that suggests those numbers will go up. The Taliban is saying children and Taliban guards are among them. And just to paint that picture, you've seen thousands of people packed outside that airport. But the chaotic spectacle of Biden's
0: withdrawal has nonetheless undercut some of the most fundamental promises of Biden's presidency. That unlike his imbecilic, narcissistic predecessor, Biden brought real foreign policy seasoning, adults in the room, judgment, and a rare dose of empathy to the Oval Office.
2: I made the decision. The buck stops with me. I took the consensus opinion. The consensus opinion was that in fact, it would not occur if it occurred until later in the year. So it was my decision.
0: Losing the public perception of basic competence can be hazardous for a presidency. Gerald Ford was blamed for the fall of Saigon, despite inheriting a war started 15 years prior by John F. Kennedy. Saigon, April the 30th, eight o'clock. The last American helicopter on the roof of the American embassy prepares to lift off the last of the evacuees fleeing before the advancing communist armies. Jimmy Carter learned that during the Iran hostage crisis that began in 1979 and ultimately cost him re-election a year later. George W. Bush learned that during the mishandled response to Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And Mr. Trump's critics never considered him particularly apt in office, but his handling of the coronavirus pandemic undermined him further. It's the Carter curse that seems to spook Biden the most, and it should. From record high oil prices to the Afghanistan debacle, the GOP and Trump in particular are looking to draw parallels for voters. The history may be inaccurate, but the public, with its short attention span and even shorter patience, could wind up turning on Biden if he's not careful. At the moment, he's betting that the public's appetite for withdrawal is stronger than their anger over the administration's early bungling of the evacuation. Only time will tell. And now for the main event. A majority of the reporting coming out of Afghanistan has rightly focused on the chaos surrounding the evacuation and the throngs of evacuees still inside the airport and its surroundings, desperate to escape the Taliban. With an August 31st withdrawal deadline, the spectacle of an Afghanistan free of U.S. involvement is now less than a week away. But that idea, especially for those Afghanis who came of age in a post-9-11 world, has created a sense of dread for those left behind. Their world as they know it is about to change irrevocably. Their lives are effectively over. My next guest on Mea Kolfa, Ben John Anderson, joins us with first-hand insight in how that change will affect the day-to-day lives of Afghanis under the yoke of Taliban rule. Anderson is the author of one of the Afghan war's most prescient books, No Worst Enemy, which predicted how the nation would fall within 24 hours once US forces left the country. It also delves into the complexity of telling friend from foe and right from wrong in a country where such distinctions are hopelessly blurred. He concludes that if he were Afghan, he certainly wouldn't be picking sides. Anderson spent four years from 2007 to 2011 with the U.S. Marines and also directed a celebrated documentary for Vice entitled This Is What Winning Looks Like. He joins me today on Maya Copa as the desperation mounts in Kabul. His firsthand conversations with activists and friends in hiding around Kabul are dire, so be forewarned. This episode is not for the faint of heart, so let's go now to that conversation. So, Ben, in speaking with your friends and contacts in Afghanistan, what are they saying right now? How has their world changed since the takeover by the Taliban? And can you give my listeners a specific anecdote that sums up reality for those in country right now? I mean, I'm getting messages from my friends constantly,
3: 24 hours a day, begging for my help and getting them or their families out. I've got a lot of former interpreter friends who are now living in Texas but they still have family there and they're convinced their family could be killed because of their you know, son's work with U.S. or U.K. forces in the past. And I'd say the overriding feeling, and there's not, there's not really one anecdote, but everyone is saying basically the same thing, is that everyone seems to be believing these Taliban statements about how, you know, we've reformed, we've modernized, we're going to let girls go to school, we're going to offer an amnesty to anybody that worked with the Americans. And basically they're saying, do you really expect us to trust the Taliban? I mean, if they're if they're as good as their word, great. But look at their twenty five, twenty six year track record. Um, there's not a lot in there to suggest that they're you know once that once the Americans have actually fully left, um, that they're actually going to say, okay, we forgive you, you can live in peace, um, and we you know we support the idea of women going to school and women having you know uh, high positions in government
0: and and so on. But what we know is that it's a whole new regime there right now. If Correct. Yeah. And yesterday there were statistics that came out that twenty one thousand four hundred people in one day were evacuated without a single incident, not a single round fired, not a person killed. We certainly had a thousand people in the United States die from the coronavirus, but not one person, thank God, died in Afghanistan. Why should we turn around and say that yesterday's Taliban are the same as today's Taliban? Now, I'm not for a second going to try to justify anything that happened in the past. But how do we know? I don't have the crystal ball. So how do we know and what give pundits the right to turn around and speculate that the new leadership of the Taliban is not going to be or not going to honor the things that they have told this administration?
3: I mean, there's a there's a fascinating contrast where I mean, most of those pundits you're referring to, I think, are Western pundits. Um, and it's very easy for them to say, let's trust the Taliban. Let's believe the statements they're making. Most Afghans would say, we don't trust those statements as, as far as we could throw the, the, the people making them. Um, and, you know, I mean, forget forget someone who's a, an interpreter that worked with U.S. forces for a very long time. Just imagine you're a 17-year-old Afghan girl in, in Helmand. We're hearing nothing about, you know, places like Helmand where, where the, the more radical, rural Taliban come from, not the ones that are negotiating in Doha, imagine you're a 17-year-old girl who's, who's been going to school in Helmand and, and someone in America is saying, no, no, the Taliban are staying. they're going to let you continue going to school and become a lawyer or become a doctor. Um, I, I think I can speak for her and say she has no faith in that possibly being her life at all. And of course, that's what we promised for the last 20 years. We promised that people like her could get educated, could get jobs, could have a life. Um, Although I have to say, the other great myth, I think, that's that's been shared a lot recently, especially, is that a lot of the people we've put in power and paid and armed and and trained and supported don't have too many disagreements with the Taliban on how to treat women, for example. Um, The majority of of marriages in Afghanistan are still arranged arranged marriages where... Fourteen-year-old, fourteen or fifteen-year-old girl may be married off to a, a distant uncle. There are women in prison right now who our ally has put in prison because they ran away from an abusive husband or an arranged marriage they, they they didn't want to take part in. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's not quite the, the 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 black and white good versus evil battle we've been we've been told it is. Afghanistan as a whole, outside of Kabul, remains extremely conservative. And often, when we hear about brutal human rights abuses, for example. It's our guy who's doing it as much as the Taliban. I mean, I've been with Afghan forces many, many times who have shown me pictures of what they've done to alleged, you know, Taliban prisoners. Um, I mean, I've seen one that was pretty much skinned alive. Um, I've been with the Afghan security forces when they've attacked a village that was allegedly pro-Taliban, and they've just sprayed it with everything they have. Um, so it's, you know, whether or not the Taliban are willing to reform or not, um the, the, the basic behavior of those in power, be they our guys or the Taliban, is still very far from the modern democratic behavior that we were told we were going to create in Afghanistan.
0: Correct. I mean, nobody is arguing that. I mean, we're there 20 years. I believe the war started under the Bush administration and what we were hoping would come out of it certainly did not. I mean, I don't no. think that there is anybody Republican or Democrat that would disagree with that statement. What we wanted, what we spent $2 trillion hopefully trying to create, we did not get what we paid for. Let's all agree on that one. But again, I sit and I listen to all of these pundits, and they all start out saying the exact same thing, which is, I think that Baradar is going to do X, Y, or Z. And I hate those words, because something here on Mea Culpa that we talk about is no more innuendo. Let's talk fact because fact matters. Now, I don't have that crystal ball that's going to say what Baradar, the leader of the Taliban is going to do tomorrow. All I know is that we have till August 31 within which to remove US forces, um, you know, military equipment, etc. Will it get extended? I don't know. I'm not a military guy. I don't profess to have military knowledge. I won't go on television and talk about Afghanistan. It's not my right simply because I just don't know. But then again, when you start out with, I think, I think it means it's all hypothetical. Let's give, let's give our administration, let's give the Biden administration the chance to do like what the CIA director did the other day. He met with Baradar. He met with the Taliban. And who knows what they're negotiating. But all I know is I don't hear the significant number of deaths. Now, are they going through people's homes? I don't know. I'm not there. If they say that people came through my home, who am I to disagree with them? All I know is the reports that are coming out and showing. I think there was one person that was killed um, two days ago outside of the Kabul airport and I don't know what happened there. I don't know what created the incident. But if it's one person, it's one person too many. No different than 10 people dying in yesterday's flash flood in Tennessee. Right? I mean, we really have to put it into perspective. I believe, I believe that the Taliban want us out of the country. And that's why things are going as smoothly as they are right now. And I can assure you that if we still had President Trump As president, this administration, this move in Afghanistan, which has been talked about for 20 years about withdrawing from Afghanistan, would be a complete clusterfuck to the nth degree. The same way that he fucked up the entire distribution of the Corona um, vaccination, because Donald Trump doesn't have the ability to put his ass into a chair with anybody and to come up with a plan. So we would basically be in Afghanistan right now, planless, telling people, hey, come on, you know, leave, as opposed to 21,400 people in one day. And people still criticizing Biden for what he did. I think there are criticisms that need to go around. I think that the Biden administration has made mistakes, but they've also done some great things like 21,400 people evacuating in one day. That's an enormous number of people. And he should get the credit. His administration should get the credit for it.
3: Yeah, I mean, the reports I'm hearing of Marines and soldiers on the ground in Kabul are performing heroics in an almost impossible situation. I do think they shouldn't have been put in the position they're in because it is utter chaos. We, we could have planned this. There could have been a lot more time. We could have. I, I made a film about the Afghan interpreters who worked with the U.S. Marines eight years ago who were receiving death threats. And in one case, someone went to an interpreter I worked with and killed his brother because he wasn't home. Eight years ago, they knew this was a problem. And back then, the interpreters, on average, it took five years for them to get a special immigrant visa so they could flee to the States. So So... You know, this this could have been handled over a much longer period of time. But the people put in this very difficult situation in Kabul Airport are doing a, a, an incredible job under almost impossible circumstances. And I would say, in terms of the Taliban, I mean, at the minute, and this is how badly we've messed up in Afghanistan. We, we're like the Afghan schoolgirl I was talking about earlier. We are relying on the, ta- the, the Taliban's either goodwill or just pragmatism as to whether or not they'll let. Uh, ISIS and al-Qaeda, for example, plan and host attacks from within Afghanistan. Um, We just don't know that. We hope that because they want to remain in power, because the only reason they were kicked out in the first place was because of bin Laden's presence, we hope that they won't allow ISIS and al-Qaeda to launch attacks. We can't say they will for sure, but we certainly can't say they won't. In the past, the Taliban and ISIS have actually fought against each other in eastern Afghanistan, but there are people in the current Uh, Taliban negotiating group with very strong links to Al-Qaeda. So we can't say whether or not there'll be attacks again.
0: No, we can't. Now, let me ask you this. In your book entitled No Worse Enemy, which was published 10 years ago, you predicted that Afghanistan would fall within 24 hours without state support. Do you believe that the Biden administration knew this would be the case and went forward with its plan, regardless of knowing that they had to get out?
3: Yes, I I think everyone has known this since President Obama, even even Bush. I think they just weren't willing to have the scenes we're seeing right now play out under their administration. You know, uh, Obama had the big foreign policy review when he came into office because he knew the Afghanistan war was going very, very badly. Um, he brought in all his experts for six months, General McChrystal, General Maitreya, and others. He tried the surge where he sent 150,000 troops. And I was there when, when a, a bunch of Marines landed in Marja and had a, a horrific fight that lasted for months. That surge didn't work. The Taliban still kept on gaining momentum, still kept on um, taking record numbers of civilian casualties. And, you know... I think Biden during that debate and afterwards argued that it it, it was doomed and that we should pull out right away. But but Obama wasn't willing to have that happen on his watch, just as Trump wasn't willing to have that happen on his watch. So he withdrew most of the U.S. troops, but not those last few thousand. Um, And Biden, to his credit, has said, you know, no, he, he can't send more Americans in to risk their lives for something which is uh, a, a success on the distant, distant horizon, which may be 10, 15, 20 years, 20 years away or even more. And, and you know, I, I, I can see him making the argument it could easily be 20 years before we've stamped out corruption and we have an Afghan government, police force, and, and army who are actually ready to do the job on their own. It could easily take 20 years. So I can see. Biden saying, I'm just not willing to risk American lives and spend another few trillion dollars for a distant hope of victory in 20 years time. At the same time, I can see people saying, sure, but lots of Afghans lives are now potentially in peril. And we should have made sure they were going to get out safely before we fully withdrew. There were only two and a half thousand troops there when, when, when um, you know, Biden started the withdrawal it wouldn't have cost much and there were no risks to keep them there a bit longer although just this morning the Taliban have said that the August 31st deadline um, cannot be extended.
0: Well they can say whatever they want you know they're obviously trying to take a position of power. Hi folks Michael Cohen here and we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode the Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics. So if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, check out last Thursday's episode with Mickey Royal, a former drug dealer, pimp, and enforcer. Royal turned his life around and transformed his nefarious existence and experience into an unlikely handbook on leadership with the publication of The Pimp Game, an instructional guide, and The Pimp Guide. Secrets of Mind Manipulation, so don't miss this episode. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests, and there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show, like the July 6th interview with Master Pickpocket Barb Arno on how he spots a mark. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds, And the Mafia. Jordan's also done an episode on how to deal with corrupt and crooked bosses, addiction, brain chemistry, and so much more. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life. Whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity, or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show, and we think you will as well. So search The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would for me, list for me your top three mistakes that you think that the Biden administration has made so far in this. And again, you know, the reason I asked this question is because it's very easy for all of us to be Tuesday quarterbacks for a Monday night game. If we turn around and we say that they should have left more than 2,500 troops, I suspect that's one of your um, mistakes that you believe the Biden administration made, that they're only leaving, what is it, 3,500 U.S. troops uh, to the end, that it should have been more. And hypothetically, if they said instead it should be 5,000, Somebody would say, no, it should have been 6,000 or 7,000. There's really no way to quantify the number other than, again, people's belief. And, of course, everybody has a belief, and it doesn't make it right. So what are your top three mistakes by this administration?
3: I mean, I I would only point to one, which is that he he didn't start evacuating all of our Afghan allies and American citizens that were in Kabul because he thought that would create a panic um, and that would lead to the kind of scenes we're seeing now. If that's true, and I'm not sure it is because people have been leaving for, for a very long time now, um, you still wouldn't have seen as much of a panic as, as we're seeing now. So I would have I left the 2,500 troops that are in country there a little longer. And I would have left the Afghan forces who did put up a bit of a fight, not much of a fight, but a bit of a fight with air support. Because they've been trained for 20 years to work with U.S. air support and some Afghan air support as well. As soon as you took that away, that, that massively sacked their morale and, and ensured that a lot of them were going to say, we're not going to stand and fight if when things get a bit tough, we've got no one in the air to protect us. And that's what led to so many desertions and defections. And, and then what led to the huge panic and rush to get to the airport and the chaotic scenes we're seeing now. Um, but, but in terms of the overall Afghanistan war, the big mistakes were made in the first couple of years of the Afghanistan war. And I think every administration, every unit of troops since then has been, has been fighting to essentially put their finger in a hole in a dam with no hope of actually turning the war around.
0: Sure, Ben, I agree with you. The, the scenes that we see here on television of what's going on on the airport, it is, you know, it's, it's heart wrenching. It's, um, it's chaotic. Go to JFK Airport the night before Christmas or before Christmas vacation. It doesn't look any different than that as people are crowded in. Of course, you're not seeing mothers trying to get their child to safety by propelling them up over a barbed wire fence. I get that. uh, And I'm not trying. And Ben, I'm not trying to make light of it. But what I do really want to say is these people have gotten out. Now, could it have been Better done? Sure. We could have sent Donald Trump 757 to pick them up so that they can all go out in style, right, instead of being put into these cargo planes. The bottom line is that they had to get out, and they are getting out, and they're getting out at pretty substantial numbers. 21,400 just yesterday alone. I think in total, there's like 14,000 that are left that's in the airport and at the fence, on the outside of the airport. So hopefully, they'll have the bulk of these people out by the end of today. I have to give Biden kudos and his administration for getting that number of people out and processed the way that they have. The
3: last few days, they've got a lot more people out, for sure, but at the minute, they're only taking American citizens and not SIV uh, awardees, so not Afghan interpreters who worked with U.S. forces for, in some cases, as long as 10 years. At the minute, there's no way they're going to get everybody out by August 31st. So people who U.S. Marines would describe as one of their men, part of their unit, they say these are American veterans, even though they're still Afghan citizens, will be left behind and may well get hunted and and killed by the Taliban. We've also got a situation right now where, I mean, to your JFK analogy, there isn't another group surrounding JFK saying, show me your paperwork. And if you have paperwork saying you worked with U.S. forces in the past, Oh, we might kill you and kill your family. That's the situation right now in, in in Kabul, and I think that could have been avoided. I I think the Afghan interpreters and their families could have quietly and steadily been given passage years ago, not just weeks or months ago, but years ago.
0: Well, remember, all you need is one person to say. What's happening to the wrong person? And then it gets into the, into the ears of the Taliban, which would have or possibly could have prevented the number of people that have already gotten out. It's very tough. And that's why I say that we have to, we have to wait till everyone's out, till our, uh, till our military are out, till the SIVs are out, till our equipment are all out. And then we could all evaluate. It's impossible to evaluate while it's going on. Oh, we should have done this. Because you don't know what the result could have been. The result could have been much worse. If you had one person tell somebody about the move to get the SIVs and their families out, and then next thing you know, you have a whole rogue group from the Taliban, and I'm just giving the hypothetical, that starts going on a killing spree. Well, whose fault is it? Right? And then, once again, it would be considered... An absolute catastrophe by this administration. So let's wait. That's all. That's my whole point. Let's just wait. Let's sit back right now. The Taliban are doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. They're standing down. People are getting to the airport. They're getting out. Do we would we like it to be better? Of course, we always want everything to be better. Let's see what happens is all I'm trying to say.
3: I agree with you completely on that point. And just a few days ago, the Northern Alliance and the Taliban met and shared pictures of that meeting of them smiling, shaking hands. That could end the civil war that many feared would come after after this, this, this U.S. withdrawal. Um, so it could be that the best thing the U.S. could have done was just leave and then let them come to a deal and, and avoid a civil war. That may well be what happens, um, but it may also be that all of those American allies, as I said, you know, American veterans get, get stuck there and potentially murdered with their entire families. And it's a gamble. It's an, And Biden, to his credit, owned his decision and said, it's completely on me. He didn't equivocate whatsoever. But, but it was a big gamble, and especially to do it with such a short window of time to, to get everybody out.
0: I agree. Ben, let me ask you this. Do you believe such chaos was inevitable after 20 years and that no matter the preparation that the U.S. would be in the same position that it is today? Is Biden to blame here or is he simply doing what needs to be done and bearing the brunt of the criticism because he's in charge?
3: No, it it didn't need to be this way. It wasn't always going to be this way. I mean, people have been advocating for a political solution in Afghanistan since, from day one. But the Taliban offered very humble terms within a few months of the invasion, where they would put down their weapons and just lead a very normal life. But in the rush to get to Iraq, we put so many people in power who actually wanted to hunt the Taliban and, and... arrest them and kill them, but eventually they were persuaded to go back to the battlefield and, and, and start as an insurgency again. Um, so, so there could have been far, far, far more smart decisions made, made early on, but also a serious effort to do a deal with the Taliban early on. And actually, you could argue that over the last 20 years, what we've really done, is strengthen the Taliban's position at the negotiating table. They were in such a weak position at the, at the very beginning, and now they're in such a strong position that, you know, when when, when the Taliban negotiated with, with Trump, for example, Trump let out 5,000 Taliban prisoners, including some of the very men who took Kabul very recently. Um, and, and all he got in return was a promise that the Taliban would negotiate with the Afghan government and sort out some sort of deal. They absolutely didn't do that. It was obvious they were never going to do that. Um, and that's one of the main reasons why you have such chaos now is because we we gave the Taliban everything they want and got almost nothing in return, which is exactly what's led to the last last few weeks and the scenes we've seen there, because there was no deal between the Taliban and the Afghan government.
0: Yeah, but the world's greatest negotiator, the former guy, got the same worthless type of promise by Kim Jong-un. You remember that when he turned around, and he said, do you see do you see missiles flying? Right. I've now. And when they blew up that, that old, um, facility that was producing nuclear material, which was actually empty, that they just blew up the side of a mountain for show. And then about a week later, they're shooting ICBMs that could potentially hit California. I mean, you know, let's be, let's be serious about it. This is not an easy scenario. Multiple, four presidents prior to Joe Biden kicked the can. Down the street. And look, this is one of those gambles for Biden in this administration that all you could do is wait. And that's what I keep emphasizing. Just wait before we already start to criticize Biden. Maybe... There was something he could have done better. Maybe not. Maybe it's actually a well-designed plan. And coming off of four previous years of no plan on anything. Let's talk about, for example, when they were, you know, doing the immigration and instead of processing people, they put them in cages and they separated parents from their children. We still have like 1,500 children unaccounted for. Right. I mean, that certainly is not the plan that you want to use when you're dealing with, you know, Afghanistan
3: and in Afghanistan over the, the, the Trump years, the Afghan interpreters were applying for the S.I.V., the special immigrant visas that was slowed down radically. That slowed down massively, which also contributed to the situation we're in now. That, 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 and if I was going to rank the four presidents in terms of blame, I would put Biden last. You know, he 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 shares least of the blame for, for the chaos that we're seeing today. Um, and when Obama was trying to decide what to do and decided to go for the advice of his generals and go to the surge, Biden was the one voice in that room saying, this is never going to work. We can't rebuild this country. Counterinsurgency is never going to work. Counter terror is all we need to be interested in. Take out any al-Qaeda, ISIS cells that, that, that might be planning attacks against the West. Apart from that, this is doomed.
0: Well, let me ask you this, Ben. Mullah Baradar was in Pakistan, was in a Pakistan prison for a little over eight years. Others are now part of the Taliban's current leadership. We're also in Gitmo. Now, they've opened the prisons in Bagram and elsewhere, releasing thousands of potential terrorist threats back into into society. Should we as America be concerned about a resurgence of terrorism, not just here, but in Europe as well um, and potentially, you know, another strike here at, uh, you know, on our land?
3: I've read a few um, op-ed columns from people saying we've just guaranteed that Afghanistan will once again be the source of an attack against the West. It's not guaranteed at all. Um, like I said earlier, the Taliban and ISIS are fighting each other. They're by no means allies. Al-Qaeda do still have links to the Taliban, but the Taliban know that if they allow Al-Qaeda training camps to exist again in Afghanistan, that's the, the, going to be the, the, the biggest reason for any threat to their power. Yeah, know, by a mile. And also, from, again, from a purely pragmatic point of view, ISIS and Al Qaeda have bases all over Central Africa, for example, where there's nowhere near as much US surveillance as there is in Afghanistan. So, so, and this isn't for any, you know, moral reasons, but purely for pragmatic reasons, I don't think we, that Afghanistan is going to be the next source of, of attacks against the West.
0: Yeah, I don't think so either. I actually have a lot of faith in our incredible law enforcement agencies like the FBI and so on. And I think that they're actually quite um, sophisticated in terms of obtaining information. And we, look, we've been safe, thank God, um, you know, since September 11th other than our own domestic issues that we have here. I don't believe that um, Afghanistan is going to be the new hub for um Islamic extremism or any extremism for that matter who i again i don't know the answer i don't profess to be a as they say in yiddish a tamul chacham, right a genius amongst geniuses in this area uh, i'm not a military guy i'm just a us citizen who is concerned i was concerned not just about you know leaving these interpreters i'm not just concerned about our you know men and women of um of the service that have given up and continue to put their lives in jeopardy for our freedom, but also for the financial responsibility that Afghanistan has placed upon this country for the past two decades.
3: Oh, the financial cost has been, has been huge. And I, mean, I know someone that runs a, um, a healthcare NGO in Afghanistan and their budget for 21 years was 133 million euros. I've seen that wasted in an afternoon in Afghanistan. Now imagine if we provided... Decent hospitals for the whole country, decent schools for the whole country. Imagine what impact that could have had um, as opposed to the, the the failed military effort, which has cost, you know, trillions of, of dollars. It's uh, again, it's, it's one of those decisions that went back to the, the very early days where, where Westerners who have very nice looking PowerPoint presentations think they know exactly what Afghanistan needs and Afghanistan wants. And actually, there are locals on the ground Good, trustworthy, dedicated, uh, incorruptible locals, including many Afghan-Americans who went back after the invasion, who were really willing to rebuild their country. They weren't listened to, um, and eventually a lot of them were either killed or gave up and came back to the States.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're talking about $2 trillion. That would have paid for all of pre-K, college for everybody, roads, bridges it would have paid for. I mean, so many different you know programs. So that the amount of money that was
3: was flooded into Afghanistan and put into notoriously corrupt warlords and political leaders fueled this culture of corruption. Where I know Afghan soldiers who had to pay a bribe to get treated in a in a military hospital. I know Afghan schoolgirls who had to pay a bribe to graduate high school. Um, in in, in Homeland, where the, the 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 war was the worst, a police district commander paid forty thousand dollars to get that position. So then you're not dedicated to providing security and justice for local people you're dedicated to getting a return on that investment um
0: yeah but, well, you know, remember the, something that's that's not a lot uh the forty thousand rod Buloggoevich is selling the governor's office for a whole lot more than that, so it's, you know, it's that, a lot, that this guy, guy was self- especially.
3: <laughs> in, <laughs> In rural Afghanistan, $40,000 is, is a hell of a lot
0: of money. Yeah, he should have asked for more. He should have called Blagojevich, uh, Blagojevich you know, for some <laughs> advice on how to sell a seat. Now, I want to ask you, because you brought this up, the Taliban has drawn a red line for this August 31st withdrawal date for all American troops, warning that there will be consequences um, for that extension. Is this saber rattling or do you really believe attacks will begin after that date?
3: The hope is it's just a negotiating ploy where they don't agree to anything instantly. They just play hardball to get something in return. Um, And again, not for any sense of, you know, wanting to do the right thing and make sure all American citizens and Afghans who want to leave get to leave. You would hope that purely for, for, you know, self-interest. They would they would allow uh, the U.S. and all of its allies to be evacuated safely and fairly. But you know, again, this is the crazy situation we're in after after 20 years of war and the trillions of dollars you just you just mentioned, where we're essentially trusting the Taliban to be as good as their word. Which is a, a crazy position to be in at
0: this point. Well, I agree with you. It is a crazy position, but it is the position that we find ourselves in. However, we also find ourselves in, as I stated, we have a new, um, administration here in the United States. There's a new administration there in the Taliban under Baradar. We may end up finding that he's a little more, um, reasonable in terms of conversation. Because so you talk about negotiation tactic. What is it that they could be asking for? What is it that they need? What is it that we can offer them in order to gain the extension? Because everybody is now saying the same thing, that the August 31 deadline date is basically unrealistic. So what could they be asking for? And what do you think we would be prepared to give?
3: So, you know, as you know from your recent stint in government, it's very easy to criticize a government from outside. Much harder to actually run a country and govern. The Taliban now find themselves in control of an entire country where there's already a massive food shortage. There's a pandemic. There's a drought in some areas. Massive problem with with corruption. Um, And most of the Afghan government's money is in U.S. banks. Um, They desperately need access to that money and to foreign aid because there is no way they can run Afghanistan um, as they are now. And and with, with all of that aid being cut off. So, so that's the main power, maybe the only power we have over them right now. Of course, the danger is that countries like Iran, Russia and China step into that void and then the Taliban say, oh, we don't need anything from the U.S. Um, and recent experiences in Syria, for example, suggest that there's every chance China, Russia and Iran could could do that.
0: Yeah, I think more Iran than probably China. I mean, China is already in discussions with you know, the current administration, as they were with the previous, uh, that, you know, leave China with some pretty e- big economic penalties for, you know, certain actions. Russia, you never know when it comes to Putin, what the guy is willing to do. Does Russia even have the money in order to give? I don't think so. I think Russia right now is financially strapped themselves. So do I really think that they're going to extend their debt? Um, do I think Putin would do that? Once again, I don't know. We have to wait yeah. and see. But the one thing that we definitely have that others don't is the vaccination for the coronavirus. And it is everywhere. Let's not forget it exists in Afghanistan as well. Um, food. Russia doesn't have enough food for its own country. Neither does yeah. China. Right. I mean, you know, China doesn't doesn't have enough. I mean, they you know, their population is just so significant. So who knows? And that's why I was asking you, you know, about this negotiation tactic. What yeah. is it that they actually need? What is it that we could provide in order to, you know, extend this deadline? Because that's actually my next question to you. I just learned about a new investment platform and I can't wait to tell you all about it. They're called masterworks.io, and they're democratizing one of the largest and old asset classes. That's high-end art. Billionaires have been scooping up Monet's and Van Gogh's for decades, while the rest of us had to watch from the sideline. But now, anyone can invest in multi-million dollar paintings thanks to a recently changed law. So why should you invest in art? For starters, contemporary art pieces outperformed the S&P returns by 174% between 1995 and 2020. They've got masterpieces from artists like Banksy and Basquiat, not the tacky fake stuff that the Donald hangs in his homes. In fact, 86% of wealth managers agree that art should be a part of their wealth offering. And now you can get in on the action. Demand is exploding, but they're giving me a few passes to let you skip the waitlist. So just head to masterworks.io slash That's masterworks.io slash And see the important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Do you think that the U.S. should even attempt to extend the deadline for the evacuation? Or do we just work harder? If they could do 21,400 in one day, why why can't they get their machinery out? Send more planes, right? You want us out by the 31st? We need 20 planes to come in to start evacuating all of the people. We need 20 more planes for our military equipment. If not, just blow the shit up anyway, What's the difference? As long as it doesn't, it's non-operational. Who cares?
3: To answer that question and your previous question, up until recently, between 85 and 95 percent of all Afghan government salaries, including police and and army, were paid for by by foreign aid. There is no way the Taliban can keep even their guys on any kind of payroll um, on their own. So they, they desperately need, a, a, access to Afghan government funds, and B, for the foreign aid to continue. And that is, that is quite, a, quite a big carrot to be to be dangling. Um, even if it's 21,000 a day until August 31st, I don't think we'll get everybody out. They're already saying that that people who have been approved for special immigrant visa aren't getting allowed into the airport. Um, and I think everyone on the ground who's trying to get everyone out has said there's not enough time to do it by August 31st.
0: Well, do you think then that the U.S. should extend the deadline for the evacuation? Yes, I do. Yeah. And how do you think that they go about doing that?
3: I mean, again, that they, that they have this big carrot with all of the money they control that the Taliban desperately need access to. Um, many of Afghanistan's schools, hospitals uh, are run by foreign NGOs. Um, if, if that spigot is turned off, the Taliban are really gonna to struggle to, to, to control the country and and the population. That's all we really have, and, and I'd be surprised if when, when push came to shove the, the Taliban were willing to maybe fire on, on US civilians or, or, or troops. I I think they realize that even if it's just a weekend of airstrikes, the price to pay for that would be an extremely high one.
0: You know, it's incredible, reflecting back, and again because innuendo doesn't count here on this program. But reflecting back, I mean, I never fully understood why the United States and our NATO allies ever imagined that they can turn Afghanistan into a modern Western style democratic, you know, uh, institution. I don't even know why we tried in the first place under Bush. What was the thought process behind that, if you know?
3: Um, I know what the thought process was. and, And, you know, what you're saying is is true. It would have been incredibly difficult to do under any circumstances. But but Bush initially said, we don't do nation building. It wasn't until 2006, 2007, they started to attempt to do nation building. And by then, corruption was a huge problem. The Taliban were already strong in much of southern and eastern Afghanistan. So we made, we made a, an incredibly difficult job much, much harder by, by not doing it for a very long period of time. Now, I think that if you want to rebuild a culture and a country, you have to do it from the inside. And the first thing you do is identify locals, Afghans, many of whom fled to America and were living in America. They fled after the, you know, the, the, the Russian invasion or they fled after the Civil War period or they fled when the Taliban first came to power. The first thing you do is identify brilliant, skilled, honest, incorruptible individuals who can help and tell you who to trust and who not to trust. What's the price of a, of a, of a fence, of a, of a well? Because the Americans got ripped off everywhere and paid 10, 20, 25 times more than they should have paid for all kinds of development projects. Um, I mean, one of my favorite stories, and it's it sounds anecdotal, but but I'm, I'm told it's true, is a, a German NGO went to southern Afghanistan and they went to a village and said, oh, you, you don't have a well. It's, it's so bad, you don't have a well. We have the funds to build your well. They built this well. They took a picture with everybody and they came back six months later and the well had been blown up. And they saw it was terrible. The Taliban must have blown up the well because, you know, the infidels came and and built you this well. And someone took them to one side and said, no, no, the women blew up the well because the only way they were allowed out of the house to see their friends in the neighbouring village was to go and get water. And you took that away from them. (laughs) That, that's how stupid we were in Afghanistan every single day, wasting millions. And I, I tell a story at the end of my book of a, of a, a father and son who fled to, to America um, in the, when the Taliban first came to power. They went back to Kandahar, where they're from, to help you know, with, with rebuilding the country. And there were many young, brilliant Afghans who wanted all the same things that you and I would want for our friend, friends and, and families. The father was assassinated fairly quickly. And the daughter gave up and went home because she just said, my country is in 360 degrees of chaos. I cannot get anything done here because corruption is such a huge problem.
0: Well, I'm not so sure that they want the same things that... I particularly want, right? I certainly didn't want to be paying for the president or the former president to get his pecker pulled by a porn star and end up in prison. I'm sure that they wanted a whole lot more important things than, you know, than that. But I do really want to ask you this because you recently tweeted about a speaking to an Afghani activist who's hiding in a safe house in Kabul. And he has a U.S. visa, and he's on the evacuation list as well but the Taliban is allegedly refusing to let him enter the airport. Has he gotten out of Kabul? Do you know the answer to that? And can you describe what his ordeal must be like or what he told you that it's like there on the ground? Because we get a whole slew of conflicting information. Um, You get somebody who's making a statement by, or to, let's say, the CNN journalist or another journalist talking about, you know, how they went through, they beat them up, you know, they're whipping them. And yet I haven't seen anybody with whip marks. Um, you know, I would, if I was a journalist, that's who I would obviously want to be talking to. I didn't see anybody other than that one young boy, uh, who died. I'm just curious. Can you, can you tell me what you're hearing?
3: I think eight um, people have died so far in the crashes to try and get into the airport, not, not just one. Um, and I, I would say of, of the people I'm talking to, I would say 30% have managed to get out so far and 70% have attempted to get to the airport and in some cases have stayed there for days and nights trying to wave their, their, their papers and get the attention of one of the US soldiers there and still haven't managed to get through and get onto a plane. Um, and some are, are telling stories and there is a lot of misinformation out there. There was a story about someone who was hung and his legs were chopped off. It wasn't true. But, you know, if I was an, interp- an interpreter, I might well be willing to, to, to exaggerate what's actually happening to try and get out. But I have heard plenty of stories of the Taliban coming to people's houses, looking for a specific individual and, and saying that they're going to be back. And people are in hiding and have fled their homes because of that. A friend of mine fled just two days ago with, with literally a, a small bag of his of his belongings and, and nothing else, because he was told he would be able to get through. And well, he did get through. and He's now in, in Doha.
0: Right. So a lot of it is predicated and a lot of the hiding is predicated on the misinformation. I mean, what if these people, these Taliban rogue sort of actors are going and rummaging through people's houses, not looking for individuals specifically, but rather looking for things that they can steal and loot? Right. I mean, it's no different sometimes than what goes on during demonstrations when people start smashing windows and taking TVs. Maybe that's what they were doing. And again, you know. They have every right to be in fear for their life because history unfortunately in most cases tends to repeat itself but it may not be the actual case here and then what happens is you start to hear all of the screams from from people on both sides, Republican, Democrat alike about these heart-wrenching scenes that are going on. What about the guy that got dragged underneath the house the other day in a flash flood in Tennessee? That's kind of heart-wrenching too here in America. So I do get it. There's always stories, but the worst is when you start finding out, like what you were talking about the guy who claimed he had his legs chopped off and it's not true, um, that misinformation really causes a lot of damage because it changes the narrative from what we're trying to do, which is to get everybody out to somewhere where they're safe and they feel safe and they can live a long and prosperous life versus what's happening now.
3: Yeah, there has been a lot of misinformation, but I am told by people I know and trust that the Taliban have been coming to their houses and and asking for them. I I mean, another friend of mine works for an Afghan news network out there. The Taliban came to their offices. They spoke to the security guards. They did take away their weapons, but they were very polite. They let them go about their business. Um, There are government ministries where women have been told, "You, you no longer work here, go home. And if you want to send your brother or your husband to replace you, you can. So we're getting very mixed messages. And part of that is because a lot of the people providing security in Kabul are from Helmand and Kandahar, members of the Taliban, who are, you know, very rural, very rough, very much against women's rights. I'm sure would love to kill former interpreters and their families. But the leadership are saying much nicer things about forgiveness and an amnesty. And they don't necessarily have control yet. But the, the, the litmus test, I think, is... Could I speak to a Afghan interpreter who I've you know spent six months in Helmand with alongside US Marines, look him in the eye and say, it looks like you're not gonna get out, but don't worry, the Taliban aren't gonna come to your house and kill you and your entire family. You know, could I really look him in the eye and, and for a second say that and then expect him to believe that? And and, and I just I just couldn't.
0: Yeah, I don't think you could either. No. And it's a it's it's a good point. We we've made promises to these individuals and we should be keeping those promises to the best of our capabilities
3: and by the way there are american veterans i know and some of whom already have ptsd but this is destroying them as well because they really feel like they're leaving one of their guys on the battlefield to an almost certain death Um, So, so even for their benefit we should be getting these guys out as well
0: yeah, I totally agree. Now, Ben, as someone who has spent a significant amount of time in Afghanistan, both in combat and inside the cities and the villages, what's the biggest misapprehension people have about the war and Afghanistan in general?
3: Um, I think it's the, the, the battle between good and evil that I, I alluded to earlier. I mean, f- From day one, we were told that you know, the invasion of Afghanistan was, was partly due to the way the Taliban treat, treat women. Um, and if you, if you Google a story about a um, girl murdered in a village in front of everybody else, I'm fairly sure that in at least half of the cases, maybe more, it will be by people that are within the government or on the government side, um, not, not necessarily the Taliban. You know, the, the idea that the Taliban introduced some of these ideas to Afghanistan is, is, is just not true. Um, most of our allies don't have too many disagreements with the Taliban About how to treat women, for example. And because of this culture of of corruption that we bred, in many cases, last time I was in Helmand, I met the acting police chief of the whole of Helmand, and all of it was under Taliban control, apart from the the provincial capital, which is called Lashkar. And I said, oh, you must come into contact with people all the time who now live under Taliban rule. What do they say to you about what their life is like? And he said, They can leave their stuff out overnight. It doesn't get stolen. They go through checkpoints and they don't get taxed. So the fact we allowed so much corruption to spread was a massive gift to the Taliban, because one of the things they do seem genuine about is rooting out corruption. So in many cases, we and it it wasn't, you know, again, it wasn't a choice between good and bad. It was a choice of a lesser of two evils. We made the Taliban look like the slightly better alternative than what we were offering.
0: Well, let me ask you this then. How do you think it's possible that the Taliban consistently outfought the Afghan national security forces, even after the United States and our NATO allies, you know, dumped in so much money, so much resources, so much knowledge and experience about war and fighting? How is it that they were able to do that?
3: I've been in, goodness knows, dozens of battles between American forces and the Taliban and Afghan forces and the Taliban. I don't think I've ever seen the Taliban win a single battle or even inflict more casualties on American forces than the Americans inflicted on them. But they're local. They know the terrain very well. They can disappear extremely easily. Um, In many cases, they are the local population, so they can drop their gun and an hour later be at a meeting with the U.S. Marine about what what needs to happen in the local town or village. And it's become such a cliche now. You know, you have the watches, but we have the time. They effectively waited it out. And, you know, I'm sure it's not that hard for you to imagine a a, a unit of U.S. Marines, for example. One has a spectacular leader who's fit, who's with them on the front lines, who does everything he expects his men to do, um, isn't corrupt whatsoever. How do you think his men are going to perform for him? They're probably going to perform brilliantly. They're probably going to be brilliant Marines. Now imagine another unit has a guy who's stoned after time, who's selling the weapons and fuel that are meant for, for his guys and, and pocketing the money. Um half of your guys have, have disappeared or been killed, but he says they're still alive and exist because he's still taking the salary and putting it in his pocket. Um, you know, how do you think those guys would perform? And that's what we're expecting a lot of Afghan soldiers to do because their leaders were were so, so corrupt.
0: Well, let me ask you this then. What do you believe that the United States owes Afghanistan after 20 years of war?
3: It's such a difficult question because, uh, you know, like you've said, it's like, like, like asking somebody if they've got a crystal ball. I understand Biden's argument that we can't keep funding this indefinitely for 20 years in the vague hope that we might be able to turn things around. At the same time, I can feel a moral obligation to do whatever we can to ensure all of those Afghans, mostly those who are living in the cities, that that some of the the freedoms and opportunities we've been prom- promising them for 20 years um, may one day come to, to come to fruition. So I would say, certainly continue engaging try and keep aid flowing if we know it's going to be spent in the right places on healthcare and education and things like that. Sadly, now we're in a position of, of so little power that, that there's not a great deal we, we, we can do.
0: But when you start talking about maybe if uh, it's possible what we might be able or what we should possibly do, to me it reminds me of the saying that I used to hear. It's the difference between Disneyland and reality. Right. You don't know what, if anything, would end up creating a victory. Right. I mean, do you think that this war could have ever been won? And if so, what would we have needed to do in order to win? Because you state exactly the right things. And what's obvious or should be obvious, they know the terrain. They were disappearing. It's like the Chechnyans. It's impossible to beat them. They know the terrain. They're willing to die for their cause. But Again, it's all about the terrain. They disappear. They show up, you know, 25, 30 minutes later, dressed completely different, meeting with their, you know, the people that are looking for them and nobody knows who's who.
3: I I think because of all, all the mistakes made on day one, all we could hope for was a very expensive, bloody stalemate or even a situation where the Taliban was slowly gaining ground for a very long time. So I understand Biden's decision to say, I'm just not willing to kick the can down the road again for another, you know, eight years under under me or my predecessor, another eight years under whoever comes next. I completely understand that. I am in a fairly minority position when I think if things were done very differently very early on, then not only could the war have been won and we could have made sure the Taliban never came back and took over the country, but that Afghanistan was a country where, Certainly in the cities, most of its citizens could have enjoyed security, prospects for their kids to get educations and work, justice for those who are corrupt or or, or committing crimes, But, but again, I think the war was lost as early as 2003, 2004. And, and ever since then, it's just been, you know, sticking plasters on a, an, or an open wound. And, and, you know, Biden said, I know it's going to be ugly in the short term,
0: but we just can't keep on doing this for, for decades. Right. But what would we have needed to do in order to win the war early on or over the course of the past yeah. two decades?
3: So, so a few, few things. Accept um, the Taliban's offer to lay down their weapons and never again fight, and they offered to support the government of Hamid Karzai. And in exchange, all I really wanted was to be left alone. We didn't give them that. We, we thought they'd been defeated and we let our allies go after them for years and years and years. We gave control of the army and police and NDS, which is the Afghan intelligence services, to the Northern Alliance, who are one side in Afghanistan's long-running civil war. So that meant they were going to go after their enemies rather than see themselves as a security force which looked after the entire country, um, regardless of, of, you know, your, your, your recent history. Um, and then the third thing, like I said, was, don't empower the, the rural world whose criminal behavior led to the Taliban's popular rise in the first place and instead empower the many, many Afghans who really wanted to rebuild their country and weren't looking to get rich, weren't looking to, to kill, torture and arrest their enemies. Um, listen to them, support them and let them build local institutions. Don't try and do it. You now, you, you know, I always said it's like take, take a take an Indian soldier and land him in New York and say, you have to rebuild this entire city. You have to decide who's gonna run each department. You have to um, uh, you know, know who's gonna be trustworthy and who isn't, what the going rate is for something. And by the way, you don't even speak the same language <laughs> as everybody here. It's impossible. And the guys we put in power, or the guys we expected to do that work just weren't trained for that. We, we expected our, our Marines and soldiers to be engineers, judges, policemen, teachers, contractors, um, and it was impossible for them to succeed. Absolutely impossible.
0: Well, then we really do owe the Biden administration a kudos because what he's doing right now is, after almost an hour of this conversation, appears to be virtually impossible to accomplish to everyone's satisfaction. Right Now, of course, knowing... Of course, Ben, knowing that you can never satisfy, in this specific case, the Republicans, because if Biden does something great here, despite all the criticism that he's receiving, if he does great here, what is that going to do to our 2022 midterm elections? People are going to start voting more Democrat, which is going to then, again, impede upon the Republicans' ability, you know, to take back the, you know, the House or the Senate and maybe ultimately the White House, which is, uh, again, you know, their goal in 2024. So the more criticism that they levy against Biden, the better it is for them, despite the fact that nobody had the guts to do what he's doing, to stop yeah. kicking the proverbial can down the road and tackle this shit once and for all.
3: Although, although, tell me this, and you'll know this much better than me. I've been living in New York for for eight years. How much of an issue, even if there are no flights anymore um, between now and August 31st, and even if um, you know a, a thousand interpreters and their families are killed in the next few weeks by the Taliban, how much of an issue do you think Afghanistan really is going to be in the midterms or the 2024? elections. I've I've been covering conflict my entire life. Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, all over Africa. I I just don't think it's an issue for for most voters, no matter what happens. Even if his gamble pays off, um, I don't think it's going to be a major issue.
0: Well, if you judge it by the amount of airtime that it's being covered on, whether it's um, ABC, NBC, CBS, or any of the cable news outlets, MSNBC, uh, CNN, uh, Fox, etc., I think it is going to be something significant because everybody, especially on the Republican side, outrage, fucking outrage. How about the fact that they've even gone so far as to demand Biden resign for his blundering of Afghanistan? Really? Blundering of (laughs) Afghanistan? Hey, let me remind you something, folks. 628,000 Americans dead as a direct result of Donald Trump's bungling of the coronavirus distribution, the pandemic, et cetera. But no, 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 no. That, he gets a pass. What else does he get a pass for? Basically everything that he's done, right? How is it that you think it's not going to be relevant in the 2022 midterms? I think it's going to be very, because again, It's all that's being covered right now. The outrage, we're not talking about the number of people that are dying each and every day from this pandemic or the number of people that have died as a direct result of just this Tennessee riptide that came through. Nobody's talking about that when we should be. They're talking about this scenario in Afghanistan. Oh, my God, look at the airport. Look at the airport. Yeah, yeah, look at the airport.
3: I I, I, I agree. It's been getting covered for the last week. But many of the very famous TV reporters have left already, and I wonder how much coverage it's going to get after August 31st. And, and like I said before, I, foreign policy is my thing. Foreign com- conflict is what I've dedicated my adult life to. I'm always amazed at how little impact foreign policy has on, on presidential elections and, and, and midterms as well. Amazed. So I hope you're right. I hope people do start caring more about the rest of the world, but they don't seem
0: to. Well, I, like I said, we'll see, right? Well, I'll let you know. I'll let you know after the midterms, we'll have a conversation, but as we're winding down the hour, and I told you the hour always goes by quickly. uh, I have one last question for you on Sunday. Dexter Filkins of New Yorker told the editor, David Remnick, that he believed the amount of Afghanis who aided the United States and are now being left behind to largely fend for themselves is criminal. That we knew these people would need to get out and yet we've done nothing to help them. Can you discuss this with me and especially what happens after the 31st to those that may end up being left behind?
3: I don't have to speculate on this point. I have friends or Afghan interpreters who are now living in the States, one of whom is a very close friend of mine, and his brother was killed because he wasn't home when the Taliban came to visit. This is before he fled the US. Um, I know interpreters who have letters of recommendation from Robert Gates, for example, from you know the most decorated Marines who spent months and months and months in Afghanistan and it still took them five or six years either to get the visas or to be rejected for for, for their visa applications. So I do think it's criminal, they are getting left behind and I do think a number of them will be left behind after August 31st. But, you know, when when I talk about it taking on average five years, that was under Obama. Um, That was slowed down, if that's even possible, (laughs) under Trump. Um, And you know, the idea that we can process, in fact, we're not even processing them now. The guys that have the SIVs, that have the visas in, in their, in their hands aren't currently being la- allowed to get to the airport and, and, and fly off home. So, so if they are left behind, and even if the Taliban don't come and kill them, um, you know, even if they just have that threat hanging over their heads, because they're never going to know for sure that they're going to be allowed to, to, to live and that they might one day get that, that knock on the door. Even if that never happens, I still think it's criminal the way we've, we've abandoned them.
0: Well, assuming that we've abandoned them, right? Because one of yeah. the things that we also know is, and again, I always try to speak from fact, not from opinion, because we all have opinions. And look, I'm not going to question your knowledge. Your knowledge about Afghanistan exceeds mine. What you forgot, I haven't learned yet. But one of the things that I look at is what's reality. Reality is the other day the CIA director William Burns met with, um, you know, met with the Taliban with, with Baradar in Kabul, yeah. and they had a secret meeting. Now I love it when they turn around and they get him on camera, or they get other pundits on camera asking, "Well, what do you think he talked about?" Well, that's why it's a secret. Maybe he turned around and he said, we may need an extra two weeks. We may need an extra month. And in exchange, like what you said, we're going to provide you with 10,000 tons of grain. We're going to free up, you know, $100 million of your money that's kept in the United States. We're going to agree not to send in a fleet of drones, right, armed to the teeth with, you know, with ballistic missiles and basically... Destroy the entire place now that the bulk of the people that we wanted out are out. We'll call them the good people. So do me a favor and then just work with us. And if we find out that you're torturing or you're killing uh, our SIVs or you're behaving um, in a way that is uh, repugnant to democratic ways towards women, um, you know, it's we're going to unleash a fury like you've never seen before. Isn't that a possibility too? It's
3: a possibility, but I would argue that if you're an interpreter living in you know, rural Afghanistan and you or your family are attacked by some small group of local Taliban, would you really have faith that that's going to lead to some kind of U.S. intervention of any kind? I hope the deal has been done and I hope there's an extension and everybody that needs to get, get out gets out. Um, if that's not the case, I can't see there being any uh, U.S. action taking place on behalf of, of our allies that might be, might be left behind. Um, you know, I just, I just don't see it, given what's happened in the last last couple of decades. And I, I think the, the long-term legacy of Iraq and Afghanistan is, and we saw it in Syria, you know, um, uh, President Obama said, if you use chemical weapons against your own people, that's a red line and you'll pay a very heavy price. What happened? Nothing. There just isn't the american appetite the american public don't have the appetite to back anyone republican or democrat to have any kind of major military or otherwise intervention in 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 these foreign countries anymore because i think people just think we can't do it there's nothing we can do to help i mean we may actually make the situation worse i mean all we're gonna have over the next i think few decades is what just happened in congo where a very small team of u.s special forces landed Got almost no news coverage whatsoever, and they're going to help the local forces fight a group called the ADF, who are an Islamist terror group who may well launch attacks against the West one day. I think that's going to be the future: very small military interventions happening almost in secret against people who may well be a threat to the US. I don't think any any action at all will be taken place on behalf of former Afghan allies, uh, former American allies in Afghanistan, let alone girls who want to continue going to school for example in Helmand province and who now can't do that
0: well now that it's finally out there in the public eye and obviously being talked about a lot let's hope that it's not the way you describe it let's hope that it's enough to uh, baradar and his group to start democratizing uh themselves you know um A lot more than already exists out there. And um, I want to thank you so much for your time and for uh, all of your insight. Thank you. And now for today's mea culpa. In listening to Ben Anderson speak about the myriad of U.S. mistakes that lead to Biden's Afghanistan debacle, I realize that once again, all roads lead back to Donald Trump. While President Biden deserves his proportion of the blame, as he says, the buck stops with me there is no doubt in my mind that it was Trump's disastrous treaty with the Taliban that lit the fuse of destruction currently befalling Afghanistan. Nevertheless, he and former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in their bungled fucking negotiations and self-aggrandizing tweets not only legitimized the Taliban, but literally re-energized them as well. It was fucking Pompeo who insisted that Baradar be freed from a Pakistani prison who then opened the cell doors of Bagram, releasing thousands of potential terrorists back onto the battlefield. Sources say that the next attack will be something devastating from ISIS and that there are former Gitmo detainees in the upper ranks of the Taliban leadership. All of this happened under the watch of Donald J. Trump master dealmaker who has been heard in recent days lavishing praise upon the Taliban at his last few MAGA revival meetings, that reminding troops to blow up the forts as they leave. It is stunning to think that nine months ago, this man was the president of the United States and setting Afghanistan policy, not to mention leading this nation. But none of this makes sense. The past year doesn't make sense. Nothing does. Now, QAnon and other far right groups of themselves celebrating the Taliban, and in some cases, showing allegiance to their cause. For me, though, there is enough delicious irony in the fact that Donald Trump is banned from Twitter, but the official account of the Taliban still has their blue check mark. There's an old ancient Chinese curse saying, May you live in interesting times. Well, I'm not sure I can stand anything more. And thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level.
3: Watch hit movies like The Matrix, G.I. Joe Retaliation, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Scary Movie, Runaway Bride, and more all summer long. Check out the biggest stars like The Rock, Keanu Reeves, Tom Cruise, Julia Roberts, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and more. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of free TV channels in English and Spanish featuring TV shows, news, sports, comedy, and more, all for free. Download the free Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device, including Android and Apple smartphones. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free.
1: Pluto TV is playing the biggest movies every night this summer for free. Watch hit movies like The Matrix, G.I. Joe Retaliation, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Scary Movie, Runaway Bride, and more all summer long. Check out the biggest stars like The Rock, Keanu Reeves, Tom Cruise, Julia Roberts, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and more. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of free TV channels in English and Spanish featuring TV shows, news, sports, comedy, and more all for free. Download the free Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device, including Android and Apple smartphones. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free.